Committed is brought to you by iHeartMedia. I have been married to the most extraordinary man for 26 years. I was planning on at least another 26 together. Want to hear a sick joke? A husband and wife walk into the emergency room in the late evening on September 5th of 2015. A few hours and tests later, the doctor clarifies that the unusual pain the wife is feeling on her right side isn't the no biggie appendicitis they suspected, but rather ovarian cancer. Amy Krauss Rosenthal wrote this essay for the Modern Love section of the New York Times in 2017. This is when we entered into what I came to think of as Plan B, existing only in the present. As for the future, allow me to introduce you to the gentleman of this article, Jason Brian Rosenthal. He's an easy man to fall in love with. I did it in one day. First, the basics. He is 5'10", 160 pounds, with salt and pepper hair and hazel eyes. Here is the kind of man Jason is. He showed up at our first pregnancy ultrasound with flowers. This is a man who, because he always wakes up early, surprises me every Sunday morning by making some kind of oddball smiley face out of items near the coffee pot, a spoon, a mug, a banana. Wait, did I mention that he is incredibly handsome? I'm going to miss looking at that face of his. I want more time with Jason. I want more time with my children. I want more time sipping martinis at the Green Mill Jazz Club on Thursday nights, but that is not going to happen. I probably only have a few days left being a person on this planet. So why am I doing this? I'm wrapping this up on Valentine's Day and the most genuine non-vase-oriented gift I can hope for is that the right person reads this, finds Jason, and another love story begins. I'll leave this intentional empty space below as a way of giving you two the fresh start you deserve. Amy died 10 days after this essay was published. 10 days after she told the world that she was looking for a new love for her husband, Jason. I was surprised, although it took me a while to deeply, you know, appreciate what she was doing. But yes, I was surprised. What she did at the end of the piece, just for those who don't know, she left a literal blank space at the end of the essay. The way she described that space was for me to, to fill it with another love story. I used that permission really as a metaphor as I continued to move forward in my life and to fill that blank space with meaning. And that's what really tried to do, I hope I've done, and, and continue to try to do as I, as I move forward. I'm Joe Piazza, and this is Committed. We don't usually do committed interviews with just one person. I think we've done it maybe once before. But Jason and Amy's love story is one that truly transcends time and death. After Amy published the most beautifully written personal ad of all time, her husband received thousands of emails, letters, and video messages from women around the world 
who were willing to apply for the job of Jason's new main squeeze. But Jason needed to mourn Amy first. He needed to work through his grief and find a way to keep living without the love of his life. This episode is about Jason and Amy's love story, both before and after Amy's death. So I think the beginning is an interesting story. So we were set up on a blind date and the gentleman who set us up, we affectionately both called Uncle John because Uncle John was Amy's dad, Paul's best childhood friend and happened to date my mom in the early 70s uh, between her two marriages. So he knew both of us as young kids. Jason had been studying for the Illinois bar exam when Uncle John called him up. And he said, you know, there's this wonderful woman moving back from a advertising job in San Francisco to Chicago, and you should give her a call. And even though I was sort of laser focused on studying for the bar exam, I, I did that. I gave her a call and and we went out on, a, on my first and only blind date. Jason picked her up in his little VW Golf with a manual transmission. They went out to an Italian joint called Jimmy and Johnny's. It no longer exists. Jason immediately thought that Amy was super cute, smart, curious about everything, and possessed a contagious passion for life. As Amy famously tells the story at the end of that meal, she knew she wanted to marry me. And about a year later, I knew the same thing. And that set us off on a trajectory of uh, being together for the next uh, 27 years or so. They were young, just 24. But they immediately felt this really deep connection with one another. They shared the same values and they just had a lot of fun together. After we were dating for just a very short period of time, I had had this uh, road trip planned where after taking the bar, I was going to go to the East Coast and see friends and et cetera. And we started to write letters to each other. And I just felt like it was such an interesting way of getting to know each other, you know, uh, not talking on the phone, not seeing each other. It, it was sort of before email was really a thing in, in a big way. And so it was just a really special way to express how we felt about each other and get to know one another through the writing process. And then, about a year after their first date, Jason was ready to propose. He wanted to do what any upstanding young man would do and ask her parents for permission. So he bought a bouquet of flowers, a nice bottle of scotch, and he asked Amy's parents for their daughter's hand in marriage. They gave him a resounding yes. My dad at the time had a commercial film studio right here in Chicago. And so I coordinated with him to, you know, I got the keys and I set up this scene of Paris on the soundstage uh, with a beautiful table laid out with a tablecloth and some red wine and some French music playing and images of Paris and stuff. Because Amy had spent a year in Paris in college and was a French major and my paternal grandmother was born in Paris, so we had a lot of connections to Paris. And that's what I did. I brought her there and got down on one knee and proposed. Jason and Amy both wanted a small wedding. They said their vows in Amy's parents' house surrounded by just friends and family. During the ceremony, Jason burst into tears and began to cry like a baby. He writes in his book that it was because it hit him genuinely to the core that he was experiencing the most happy moment of his life. 
very soon after that, on our second wedding anniversary, we brought home our first child and we have three children together. And, you know, raising a family with Amy was just really a joy, you know, it was full of a lot of fun and whimsy and creativity, even through all the chaos of having three children about two years apart. On that exhausting note, time for a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. In the past few years, Jason has had a lot of time to reflect on exactly what made his marriage work. As I began to process a lot of this stuff, it was clear to me that people wanted to know who those two folks were that were uh, the subject of Amy's viral, very viral essay. And as I began to reflect on it, it, it really comes down to the fact that we really supported each other individually in our professional lives. You know, we just really were there for one another. And I really encouraged Amy when she wanted to drop out of her full-time advertising job and, and take a stab at writing full-time to do it. You know, it was her passion and I, and I knew that. And so that's part of it, you know, and she always encouraged me when I won a case or, you know, did a deal in my real estate business. She was always very, very supportive. So there was that, you know, there was supporting our individual paths and being happy for each other almost more on a percentage basis than we were, you know, just for ourselves. So that was really a support there. When I began to write my book, I found something in, in our crawl space amongst all the stuff that one saves throughout the course of one's life. And it was a document that we wrote on our honeymoon. And the document was called Amy and Jason Rosenthal's Marriage Goals and Ideas. <laughs> and I had sort of forgotten about it. The list is great. It includes things like keep sex fun, never stop learning, get dressed up, and go on dates common sense, and also things we usually forget. And it was interesting because I didn't exactly remember writing it until I read it again. And as I began to reflect on it, it really did form a lot of the foundation of our, our lives together over the next 26 years. And one of the things that was on there was pretty simple, and that was to really take time to be together and remember throughout all the chaos of raising kids and, and what that brings, as you well know, is to stop and pause and, you know, go out on dates and remember 
that it was the two of us who came first. And that's something we literally did from day one, sometimes probably to a fault. You know, we would have a babysitter who was 13 years old and say, okay, here's a, here's a frozen pizza and a, and a blockbuster video we'll see in a couple of hours. But I think it was really, really important for us to take that time to, to be together. Amy and Jason had taken a gigantic bite out of life. Amy had written 35 children's books. They'd raised a family together. But they were looking forward to it finally just being the two of them again. Amy, who loved making lists, made this long list of things they'd do during this new phase of their life. It included going to Burning Man, living in a foreign city, and doing more social service. The timing is just unbelievable when I think about it. We were the type of couple that was really, really, really looking forward to the proverbial empty nest. Our youngest, our daughter, had just gone off to college, literally, and Amy was on a business trip. And she called me from there and said, you know, I'm, I'm not really feeling so great, something in my stomach. And I called my family doctor and she recommended that you pick me up from the airport and we go straight to the emergency room. And, you know, this was very unusual, I have to highlight, because, you know, living with Amy for 26 years, this is a woman who rarely ever complained about anything physical. And I knew something was really wrong, but I had absolutely no idea, you know, what it ultimately became. So I took her to the emergency room from the airport, literally the day that she was going to walk through our door and we were going to enter that phase of having this empty nest together. The diagnosis was ovarian cancer. At first, Jason was sure his wife was going to defy the odds. She was strong, she was otherwise healthy, and they had plans. They had plans for this empty nest. Amy endured surgery and chemotherapy, and for a while, they both thought that Jason was right. Amy went into remission, and it looked like she was going to make it. They could breathe again. But then their world came crashing down. The malignancy came back, this time in Amy's liver and lymph nodes. Amy facing her own mortality forced the two of them to have these really intimate conversations about the end of her life. We knew it was coming. We knew that the, it was potentially the end of her life at the beginning, and then we absolutely knew that it was coming. And so it allowed us to spend some time digging into some really deep questions about, for example, in our specific case, I had a lot of angst about what it was going to be like to be a single parent to these three amazing children. And so we talked a lot about that. And, and those conversations that we had helped me so much because she assured me very specifically that, you know, Jason, you can do it. You, you have such a great relationship with each kid and you're going to be okay. And, and hearing that from her was just so helpful to me. And then we talked about a lot of other things as well. And, and those ranged from practical considerations about you know, what kind of service she wanted. Did she want a religious component or some music? Or did she want so-and-so to speak? And what does she want to do with her body? And all of those things are important things to talk about. And lots of people don't have the time to do it. You know, they're not as fortunate as we were because some things happen quite suddenly. And so I do encourage people to have these types of conversation really early on. And anyway, that's a long way of saying that our intimacy if it was possible, really grew closer and closer. And I think that I never had the issue of, you know, feeling like whether I loved Amy or not, but if it was possible, that too even grew so much more throughout the course of the end of her life. Jason felt like he had one mission during this time, 
All he needed to do was make Amy comfortable, to be her caretaker, make her feel loved, and make her last moments on this planet as tolerable as possible. And throughout all of that, Amy was working on her modern love essay in secret. It was at a time period where we had no other options, and Amy's doctors told us we could either do hospice at home or in the hospital. And we entered home hospice. And I only knew that Amy had one final project that she wanted to complete before the end of her life. And I'd watch her from across the room as she literally physically labored through trying to get through this final project because, of course, she was on high doses of medication and terminally ill. And it wasn't until it was complete that she said, would you like to read it? And I said, of course, you know. And that was the first time I knew that this piece was basically focused on me, certainly about our life together, but it was a creative play on a personal ad for me for when Amy died. And it was incredible. You know, when I first read it, the prose was so beautiful and the combination of the intense, you know, feelings that one could have about terminal illness, but then also in the same sentence, just laugh, you know, out loud. It was remarkable. And so, of course, I gave her my blessing and said, you know, great, if, if it gets published, that's awesome. But, you know, even living with a very, very successful writer for all this time, one never knows what's going to happen or, and if or when it's going to get published. It immediately went crazy viral with more than five million people around the world reading it. At the same time, of course, my focus was on Amy and making her comfortable for this last stretch of her life. And it's not always so beautiful, even though it, it also is very beautiful in some ways. It's really difficult. And the pain of watching someone you love physically disappear sort of right in front of your eyes and the incredible emotion that is tied with caregiving at the end of life. Um, and those images that one has, anybody who's been through hospice, and there are a lot of us, knows what I'm talking about. But, you know, those, those lasting images are haunting. And uh, unfortunately, that's what stays with you for a really long period of time. And then, you know, after that, really focusing on the kids and plans and arrangements and things like that. We're going to take a quick break here. When we get back, we'll talk to Jason about all the messages he got in response to Amy's essay. Hey, guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. 
So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Once Jason could finally lift his head back up and face life as a 52-year-old widower. I was literally inundated with physical correspondence, emails, uh, requests for media. All these things were just raining down on me. And to be honest with you, it's a bit of a blur, you know, because I didn't pay attention to really any of it at that moment. Uh, even for the first many months, I rejected all media requests and because it got kind of like, you know, people interested in salacious details. Even so early on, I was just, I was turned off by all of that. But as I began to proceed forward, it was at the end of 2017 when I was asked if I wanted to give a TED talk about my process and what it was like to be with someone you love at the end of their life. And as I slowly began to emerge from that really, really tight grip of grief, you feel like you can never get out of at the beginning. I started to appreciate all of these things that people had sent to me and to my family. And then there was, of course, a, a full category of letters and emails that were from women who were trying to take Amy up on her, her offer, you know, to uh, reach out to me and, and to start what Amy wanted for me, which was another love story. At the time, that just sort of there, there were a lot of those that really made me laugh and smile because of uh, the content of what, what they wrote about. And, and I needed that, you know, I needed that lift at that time. And that's what it provided me. Were you surprised by Amy's essay? I was surprised, although it took me a while to deeply appreciate what she was doing. But yes, I was surprised. And what she did at the end of the piece, just for those who don't know, she left a literal blank space at the end of the essay. And what she described that space uh, what, the way she described that space was for me to, to fill it with another love story. I used that permission really as a metaphor as I continued to move forward in my life and to fill that blank space with meaning. That's what I really tried to do, I hope I've done, and, and continue to try to do as I, as I move forward. In her essay, Amy challenged Jason to look forward, to live his best life without her. And it took a long time, but Jason finally did start dating again. He's now in a relationship, and he tries to keep it mostly out of the public eye to try to give the two of them space to let it grow. Well, I'm very grateful to be in a meaningful relationship. The reason I even speak about that in any way, because let's be honest, it's really challenging to talk about. It's still, three plus years later. And a lot of that is internalized because I think for those in my position, people around you, your family, your close friends, people you care about really just want you to be happy. But still, I think you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And that's why I talk about it. That's why I wrote a little bit about it. The idea of someone in my position, I was basically out of the dating game for 30 years, which is a really long time. And the challenges of dipping your toes into that territory are intense. And I wanted to sort of you know, pay it forward, pay forward what Amy gave me in, in giving me that kind of permission. And I think by writing about it, I, I do that for other folks in my, my similar scenario. How do you keep Amy's memory alive? I bring up Amy a lot. You know, I bring her up not only in connection with our incredible relationship, but with how she lived her life. She was just, you know, this incredible human being who was generous and kind and 
something I think that we need a lot more of in, in our world. Many people close to me wonder, is that okay for you? You know, is it okay for you to keep talking publicly about Amy like that? And for sure it is. That's my answer. It brings me joy. It brings joy to my family and it brings joy to people all over the world. And so that's one way. Pretty much immediately after Amy died, I, I started to commission a piece of public art in her honor that I wanted to put up here in Chicago in a, in a public place. And with the help of an artist, we, through two years of navigating the city of Chicago and the, the park district, got that done. And so there's a beautiful glass umbrella, a yellow umbrella became Amy's legacy symbol that sits in the park. And it, it's a wonderful space for us and her family to return to and reflect or to smile. And it's also a, a space that others can enjoy in community and hang out and read and appreciate. And I think selfishly too, it's a place that I hope that one day, if I'm blessed to have them, that I can, you know, take my grandchildren to and talk, talk a little bit about Amy. How do you like to describe her? What stories do you like to tell? Oh gosh, I mean, there's so many. I, I mean, I would tell my grandkids what an incredible human being she, she was and her enthusiasm for life and her creativity in general. I know that's sort of a generic word, but the way she was able to live her life by doing the things that she absolutely loved every single day and cared so much about people and brought them together in community in these sort of strange but beautiful projects that she that she engaged in and you know how she did things for other people without any expectation of anything in return it's such an incredible quality in a human being Losing Amy taught Jason about what it was like to live with grief, to live with it and to push through it. He writes about it in his new memoir, My Wife Said You May Want to Marry Me. In it, there are tons of lessons for people who've lost loved ones, something a lot of us are going through right now. But there's also wisdom for dealing with grief in your everyday life, mourning the loss of expectations, jobs, and normalcy. Everyone right now in the face of this global pandemic and other issues that are presenting themselves in, in, in everyday news are going through loss and grief in some form or another, whether that comes in the form of, you know, not being able to go out and do the things you used to do, your normal routines, or not getting paid. You know, a lot of people have lost their jobs or, God forbid, know someone who's desperately ill uh, and made it through or desperately ill and succumbed to this disease. I think that what I really learned about grief is that there is no timetable. And as we take three steps forward, we, we may take one back or two back and dip back into anxiety. And that too is really normal and not to be too worried about that process. My experience in, in having gone through this, of course, is that it will at some point dissipate and to hang in there and to really embrace the grief that you're feeling because that's important too and to know that you will emerge from that feeling at some point and at some point in the future experience tiny moments of joy 
that you didn't think would ever be possible again and to you know embrace those as well because they'll become more frequent as time goes on This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza, with special thanks to Jason Rosenthal. And a very special thanks to Lauren Vogelbaum for reading Amy Krauss Rosenthal's essay. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Ramsey Yunt. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klein. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404 404- 996-1173 or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com that's j-o at committedpodcast.com you can grab a copy of joe's book how to be married on amazon or wherever books are sold committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in atlanta georgia for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.